Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 95 of The Nathan Seward Show. The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Well, welcome to the show, guys. Hope you're having a great start to the week so far. Uh, hope you guys are having a great week. Uh, let me know where you are when you're watching this. Let me know where you're watching from, where you're tuning in from. Yeah, share the episode around. Always great to have you guys here. Uh, today, I'm talking to my friend, Robert uh, Kendall. Let me tell you about Robert. He's an interpersonal communication expert, speaker, podcaster, and the author of the best-selling book, Unhidden, which is a book for men and those who are confused by them, which is me. I'm very confused by men. Uh, since 2002, Robert's mission has been to help people find themselves and use their internal power to live their best lives. Uh, he's helped thousands of students up-level their communication, leading them to live more balanced, energized, connected, and purposeful lives. And he joins me now. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Uh, so happy to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So tell us about you. It's quite the, the bio you have. We were talking a little bit before we started about your journey, but give us a little bit of a rundown. Where do you come from and how did you find yourself in this type of work? Well, the way I like to tell my story, I was normal until I was around 28. And what I mean by normal was I was living the American dream of great in high school, great in college, go to grad school, find the girl, buy the house, go to corporate America, rise up the corporate ladder. And at 20, 28 years old, I was succeeding in terms of all the things that were laid out, which was actually my father's dream more than my own personal dream. And then at 28, I went to Burning Man for the first time. Uh, 1998 was Burning Man's The Festival in the Desert. And at that, uh, I had some pretty and very intense experiences at Burning Man that woke me up, woke me up to there was so much more about the world I did not know, understand, perceive, confront. And it was like a door opening up to this whole other world. Fell deep exploration, personal development. Totally embarrassed myself at a workshop in 1999. Met incredible people. Uh, started an organization called One Taste in 2004. Taught a practice called orgasmic meditation. And built that from a paper napkin sketch to an eight-figure international business till 2014. Left then, totally burnt out. PTSD, fried, came to Venice Beach, California to recreate this last iteration of my life. And since then, have built a business, wrote a book, a fractional CFO on one side, life coach on the other side, and married to an incredible woman, co-parent to two amazing kids, and live in a gated community. So it's uh, quite the switch from the yeah. you know uh, sex commune of one taste to where I am now. Wow, quite the mix. And very uh, relatable. We talk a lot about um, on this show that the idea of creating your the life of the job, you know, the wife, everything being sort of picturesque and then finding out that you're not fulfilled or that uh, you're not happy. And that even though from the outside, it looks like you have everything, mm-hmm. something's not quite right. Yeah. I mean, it was, I was rising up the corporate ladder at 20 years old. I was making a six-figure salary, had a 401k, had a stock portfolio. I really, my parents were so happy because their <laughs> son had made it to this upper echelon. But I was also, you know, 40 pounds overweight. I was a workaholic. I was working 60 to 70 hours a week. I was married to a woman I never spent any time with or understand and uh, just was miserable on the inside, but without permission to even say to myself, this wasn't working. So, you know, all these experiences happened, woke me up to find out who I wanted to be in this world. 
what was sort of the first moment? Because I know it's not it's not usually one thing that just changes everything. Uh, not in my experience, anyway. But what were some of the, the key moments? Just take us a little bit deeper. The first moment was a bicycle accident I had uh, while at Corporate America. This was before Burning Man. I was you know working. They gave me this huge bonus, like this you know five figure bonus, and all I wanted was a bicycle. So I went out and bought this tricked out bike. And the problem when you're work you're working seventy hours a week, you can't ride your bicycle because you're you're working all the time. And so um, this one day, this one Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, I was able to go home early. So I went home two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon, or maybe that was later. It was like four o'clock, which was early, and jumped on my bike and was riding in a place called San Francisco, a place called the Presidio in San Francisco, which is the old army base. Close and to the it's twilight, right? exactly. And as the twilight came on, uh, I realized there were no streetlights. And another thing about the Presidio is they have road, curb, and then gullies Mm. for the water. And so what happened is it was getting dark. I was like, I'm going to get a good workout. I'm going to get a good workout. And then my front wheel went into the gully. I flipped over, broke my collarbone, had a concussion, and, you know, was pretty much disabled. I went to the hospital, got well taken care of. But then the next day, uh, my corporate America company said, hey, we have questions for you or we need you back here as soon as possible. And I was sitting at home, you know, like a broken wing and, you know, with a concussion. And I was just like, God, these people don't give a shit. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They don't give a shit about who I am. They just, I'm the cog. And that was the first moment of like, oh, this is not the way I want to live my life. A little bit of an awakening. Yes. Through a broken collarbone. (laughs) Yeah. That's an interesting one because we go from institution to institution, right? You know, whether it's from college into these big corporates. And so I don't think until those moments you stop to realize that you are just a cog in the wheel. Indeed. Kind of, you're so in it. Yeah. And I was I was good at it. Like I was good at playing the corporate game. I was good. I was, you know, I got hired at 35000 and within two years I was making $75,000, $80,000. I was running departments. I was running a team of programmers in this IT department. I was like good at it. and But I had no acumen about the impact it had on my soul, no impact on my, my body. Like I was 40 pounds overweight. I was stress-filled. I would, you know, leave the office but not really leave the office. And totally distant from this woman I had married, totally distant from myself. And I thought, this is the way it is. Mm. This is the way it's supposed to work. I am succeeding. Why did you decide to go to Burning Man? That was uh, my first wife, Carol's fault. 100%. She, uh, she said to me, hey, do you want to go to Burning Man? And Burning Man, the only thing I knew about Burning Man was this picture book that I'd, a friend had shown me. And because Burning Man 1998 was relatively small. It was a uh, and the internet wasn't as big, and so you didn't really know about it. And in this picture book, I'm looking, and there's like you know naked people. But I did focus on this one picture of a group of naked people encrusted in mud. I guess there was a mud bath at this year's Burning Man. So these naked people were walking around the playa encrusted with mud. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to that. That's dirty. That is for those other people. <laughs> I am not one of those people. But she's like, come on, let's go to Burning Man. And I was like, all right, just to make her happy. And the funny part was that once I got there, uh, you know, I drove up and got out of the car and these words came to me that I was home. And I was like, oh, I was like a shock to my system that a yuppie, a New York, you know, sheltered vanilla man could actually 
feel at home in an environment such as Burning Man? Yeah, because it's a pretty unique choice. Like I went uh, two years ago that mm-hmm. Burning Man was just last week or maybe two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a lot of creative people there and you know, it's a unique place, but probably you don't see a lot of, you know, corporate. <laughs> well, now it's like the playground of tech technology and but they do set up these beautiful million dollar camps and mm. They're actually under a lot of flack from the people who run Burning Man, uh, basically saying this is not what Burning Man's about. Burning Man is not about, uh, you know, watching. It's about participating. And back in 1998, there was nothing even close to that. Right. So it was very, it was a big challenge for me. And little did I know how much of an impact it was going to have to wake up. I did Magic Mushrooms for the first time. Psilocybin blew my mind open and I liked it. So it was like, Wow, and then you know people were all around naked, and I was like my little mind, and so it was it was a pretty incredible experience. How do you? There's a lot of people haven't been. Probably majority of people that are watching and listening to this haven't been. How sure. do you describe Burning Man to people? Well, I can only talk to you about my 2003 last time I went, which mm-hmm. was 16 years ago. My goodness, you cheer for another one? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Morgan, my my current wife, will will fly in and be there for two days. But anyway, it's a different story. Right. Um. Burning Man for me in 2003, and what people have told me since then, it's just radical free expression. It's an opportunity to create a new name for yourself, a new way of being, to connect, to leave your cell phones home for a week. It's a time to be in community. Now it's like 75, 80,000 people, and they create incredible art. So for me, uh, 2003, the four years I went, ending in 2003, was just an opportunity to see a new side of myself, to allow this hedonist to come out, to explore different parts of myself, which was really amazing uh, and changed my whole life. Yeah. Just the fact that you did mushrooms for the first time, that would have been, I mean, mm-hmm. that would have created a whole change. It's oh, yeah. To go back from. Yeah, it's yeah. never stopped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where do we move from there? What, what you come back from Bernie, when, what are the changes that you make? Well, at Burning Man, the story I didn't tell you was uh, another epic change was my wife, Carol, came to me and said, hey, I, I heard there's this tent, this camp called Delilah's where there's orgies. Do you want to go? And I was like, yes. You know, it was yes. You know, it was like the high pitched. Yeah. I had a very rich fantasy life uh, that was very hidden from her and everyone. And we had a very straight vanilla sex like no conversation. So it was shocking that this woman I was married to, obviously didn't know, wanted to go an orgy camp. So all day I'm thinking like, Delilah's orgies. Am I going to have sex with another woman? Am I going to watch Carol have sex with someone else? Like a little energy. It was like... You didn't really talk about it beforehand. Yeah, it was just like shocking that she even wanted to go. And so uh, we got, uh, rode our bikes over around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And I'm really excited. There's the the base of the the techno coming from the tent and we open up the flaps and I see 300 men and three women and obviously <laughs> no orgy going on, you know, at this. No, orgy camp. Not what I was expecting. So Carol became very popular. I was a uh, person non grata. And so then uh, we left and I was dejected. I was so disappointed. But what mm-hmm. happened was we started to talk about our sex life. Honestly, it was the first honest conversation I'd ever had with anyone in my entire life about my sex and desires and this porn I was reading and like all these things. And she was revealing all the stuff inside. I was like, oh my God. And so one truth led to another. 
And so when we came back to the world after Burning Man, we started to explore alternative sexuality. Went to a swingers club in San Jose, which I do not recommend. Started taking workshops, started, you know, all these things. And just uh, we became really curious about alternate possibilities. Formed a non-monogamous relationship, got involved heavily uh, with this group called the Welcome Consensus, and just opened up everything, which etch a sketched every aspect of my being. Wow, this is fascinating because, I mean, maybe people sometimes think about doing this, but I'm not sure how many people have the courage to actually ever try that. Yeah, it's it's not for the faint of heart, you know. I'm I'm you know like I'm not prescribing it uh, as a, a lifestyle choice, but you know you what might be. What here's what I really recommend is I recommend that you start to tell the truth first and foremost to yourself, because most of us are are big liars, big fat liars, and we lie. I don't really want that, or it's not worth it, or, you know, I'm bisexual. No, I'm not bisexual, or I have desires, or like we we lie to ourselves. So first and foremost, I recommend telling yourself the truth. And when you have enough grounding in your own truth, then to tell your partner and your intimate friends the truth about you, and then invite them to tell tell you the truth about them. And then we're actually having honest conversations, because that's where life occurs. You know, to me, not in the status quo, hidden, muted aspects of ourselves, but in the dynamic, rich, authentic parts of ourselves. And my whole life exploded from these one or two truths I was willing to tell and the truth I was willing to listen to. Hmm. I love that. Like, let's say that a lot, actually. How do you recommend people like, getting honest with yourself? How do you, is there a process you recommend people do? I often say, like, journaling is a big one. Just start writing. Well, the first is to uh, confront. Uh, What I mean by confront is to take down the blinders and see. Mm. You know, when these thoughts come up, do you rationalize them away? When these these ideas, oh, I'll never happen, she'll never go for that. Uh, If these things come up, oh, who am I to want that? All these Mm. little programs that we've installed and had our parents install and society install in us saying, you can't have that. It's best just to start to confront them and see them. Then get curious about them. Oh, what is it about that thing, that desire, that's such a taboo turn on for me? What is it about feet? What is it about kink? What is it about uh, non-monogamy? What is it about plant medicine? What is it about quitting my corporate job and finding one that actually fits my soul, even though I went to law school, even I went to this and that, just listen to that voice before you shut it down and then pull the threads of what it's trying to tell you. Mm. Yeah, just trying to understand what's working, what's not working. Well, it's beyond that. It's it's what's true and what's not true. Mm. Because your untruth, your hidden truth could work really well in society but it's not good for your soul. That's where cancer comes from. That's where illness comes from. When we live, in my opinion, a lot of it has to do when we live out of integrity of who we truly are. Yeah. Yeah. I read uh, a quote today. It's like a Jim, Jim Carrey quote. There's a lot of like uh, deep quotes from Jim Carrey at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing some good exploration. Yeah. It's fascinating to watch him do that in a very public way. He Mm -hmm. said something like uh, depression is your soul telling you that it can't wear this mask anymore. Yeah. I love that. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay. So exploring the truth. Uh, yeah. I, I hear you sort of say like, look at the, you know, what 
like John Wineland would call it the texture. What's the texture of mm-hmm. the, the the thing that you're looking at? Yeah. Um, and then where do you go from there? Well, once you've discovered your truth, once you've done the work, um, you know, we live in an uh, information-rich society. There's never been as easy a time to gather information about what you're curious about. There's probably a YouTube video or a dozen about them. There's probably a blog. You know, there's probably a few books. So, you know, just go and research. Take the things you're confronting, the curiosity you have, and just go out and read other people's experiences of them. And hopefully you get three or four counter concepts, or hopefully you get some different viewpoints about them and see where it lies. Like, what's it like to come out to your parents? What's it like to, uh, you know, go move to India? What's it like to, you know, change religions? Like, go and, and read other people's experiences. That'll just give you more information. We suffer what I like to call terminal uniqueness, where we think we're the only person in the entire world with this one little proclivity, with this one little fetish, with this one little peccadillo, right? We think we're the only one. And in that, it creates a lot of fear to come out and be out in the world with that thing. But then you go to the internet and you're like, oh my God, there's a thousand blog issues on this. You know, there's one little thing. You're just like, either you go, damn, I thought I was the only one or thank God. Most people go, so go and research and, and see what else is out there. You know, stop the crazy making thought that I'm the only one with this thought and then learn from, you know, the rich information sources out there on any topic that's possible. Yeah, it's. Uh, I've noticed a lot in New York. You know, a lot of times I feel like God, I'm so like lonely here. You know, and I, mm. I feel very overwhelmed by everything. And then once I mention that to a few people, they're like, "Oh, everybody feels lonely and overwhelmed, even though there's eight million people right outside the window." Exactly. And as soon as you start talking to people, that is actually the common ground you have with them that you feel the same way. Right. And then what do you do when I'm lonely? There's something wrong with me. I'm an X, Y, you know, X, Y, or Z. I'm a loser. I'm fat. I'm lazy. I'm unattractive. I can't talk to someone. And then self-flagellate, self-flagellate, self-flagellate. And what we do is we get stuck in this loop of I'm lonely. I'm miserable. I'm a bad person, which increases the lonely, which has us feel more like a bad person rather than taking the energy of, because we see everyone else doing it. Oh, maybe there's a meetup I can find. Maybe there's a professional organization I can go to. Maybe I can actually talk to that person I'm attracted to at work. Like, it, instead of taking the energy of beating ourselves up, take the energy into creating the life that you truly want. Yeah, using it proactively. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, that uh, the, the loneliness and the self-flagellation. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Like, uh, the shame seems to be a big one, you know, mm-hmm. like having shame. And w- with all the stuff you're talking about, one of the reasons I struggle to be honest about certain parts is because it feels in some way shameful or, or it feels like it's a part of my image that I don't want to have out there or it's a part of me mm-hmm. that I don't want anyone to see, you know? Right. I'm trying to hold up an image of something different. Right. What I call the facade. Yeah. And, you know, you put up the facade. Uh, I don't like kink. So, or like, you know, if my parents knew that I was into kink, what would they think? And therefore, what would that mean about me if my parents knew I like to get tied up and whipped by another person? Like, what would it mean? And then you just go through this process of convincing yourself that you would be alienated you know, yeah. or, or abandoned. Like, my belief, the whole scenario in your mind. If oh, yeah. Like, I think our greatest fear is that we'll end up alone dying under a bridge. 
Like that's our human fear. And that fear or that avoidance is what stops us from living. We'll do anything then to end up in that point. So what do we do? We rationalize all the things about us that are actually tend to be the most interesting things about us rather than, you know, face the reality that we might have someone else's discontent because their disbelief in us is just a mirror of our own lack of belief, our own lack of self-love, our own lack of self-validation that enables us to get pulled by others. Mm. It's, a, it's a tough one. I mean, in, in the gay community, you see it often where a you know a politician who's been staunchly against gay marriage or something like that, you know, gets found out having a gay relationship or right. gets caught in a bathroom or something, you know, it's that the shame has you often, you know, doing the opposite or right. you know, going up against it in the opposite. And then you're really stitched up at that point. Right. Yeah. To be honest, is really difficult at that point. Yeah. And I think that's quite common. We don't value authenticity in society. Or more specifically, we value authenticity in very specific cases in very specific boxes you know, in the right time. That we can handle and process. Right. Where the other person will not feel uncomfortable by us being authentically who we are. <laughs> right. right. That's really the rule. And so what we do is we're well-trained. We're encouraged, sometimes even forced to wear these facades about who we are. And then we spend so much energy maintaining the facade I'm not gay. I'm not gay. I'm not gay. I'm not gay. And to the point where we're angry at gays for reminding us that we are gay. (laughs) So like we spend so much energy in building that facade. And guess what? That person across from you is also doing the same thing because you're encouraging them to wear their facade. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you're whoever you're relating to, it's facade relating to facade. And all it takes is one person to say one thing to open the space of authenticity and truth, which could lead to that person leaving, but then the chances of actually having an authentic relationship increases significantly. Mm. That's what my work is about. It's just about what is the communication you need to make in the proper form in order to actually be authentic with the people, your intimate friends. Yeah, I love this because, you know, for, for me, I think as part of being coaches, you sort of, you have to practice a lot of the stuff yourself. Often, <laughs> yeah. Like if now, you want to be a good coach, a camera in front of people, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think there's a, in my experience, there's just having the ability to be authentic or vulnerable is not the end of the story. Mm. And I love that you bring up the the communication or understanding how to communicate because I think uh, you know family's a good one, right? Where you may want to, you know, you've suddenly decided to be authentic about something in your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever that might be, putting boundaries in place or standing up for yourself or not tolerating someone else's behavior or you know, coming out as gay or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean they're going to accept it. doesn't mean that it's going to be a polite conversation. There's going to be nope. a ton of triggers involved. There's mm-hmm. you know, buttons, as we call them. So how do you start this work? How do you start this work of teaching people to communicate? I have frameworks that help. So here's one of my favorite frameworks. Let's say that you're with your intimate partner. There's something you've been withholding. Withholding refers to a truth inside of you that you have not relayed out into the world. Okay. So you're withholding. 
my lineage and my belief system is withholding is akin to lying. We actually, in our society, withholding is polite. I hold withholding akin to lying. You're, mm. you're lying to the person by not telling them X, Y, and Z. You then find yourself in relationship, romantic or whatever, but you're in an intimate relationship, uh, not like an acquaintance, but you're actually in intimacy. And you know that this withhold is creating distance, a chasm between you and that person. And you're seeing the impact because you're confronting the impact. So here's what I recommend. You ask that person, hey, there's something I need to talk about. Can we spend an hour together tonight after the kids are to bed talking about the thing? That person immediately is going to say, what is it? What is it? What is it? Tell me, tell me, tell me. You're like, just like, no, it's all right. Everything's fine. I just want to talk about something. Were you willing to spend an hour with me, you know, so I can tell you? And they'll be like, ah, okay, yes. Hopefully they'll say yes. If they say no, then check out the value of that relationship. Hopefully they'll say yes. So then you you set up the the parameters of that hour and you want to minimize distractions. No phones, no music. If you can put the kids with a kid sitter or, you know, like go to, you know, a separate room, but make sure you won't be interrupted. So then you're in your quiet space. Then you tell, this is the the counterintuitive thing. When you say to that person what you're about to say, the first thing you do is apologize. I'm sorry that I've been withholding this from you. My motivation has been I've been desperately afraid that you're going to leave me. And in doing so, I haven't felt the strength to communicate it. And I want to apologize to you because I know it's had an impact on our relationship. I can feel myself distancing myself from you. They're probably like, okay, all right. They don't know what the thing is yet, but the, at least you're laying the ground, you're building rapport, you're building connection. So then after they accept your apology, you lay out the thing. Last year when I was on that business trip, I went to a strip club. I got a lap dance, and then she gave me a hand job. I don't know, whatever. This thing Only happened. specific, probably. Yeah, specific, but you're not explaining your motivations. You're not trying to make it better. You're just saying the thing. Then you shut up, and then you wait, and you wait for that other person to have their reaction. The reaction might be moral outrage. They might be like, oh, I knew that. I read your journal. Ah, no. Like you, like, you know, I, I felt something was up or it could be somewhere in between, whatever that is. And then you just sit and let them tell you the impact. Then you respond to their impact and then you have a dialogue around it. And it could be that person leaves because of this break in your relationship. But at the same time, wouldn't you rather be in a relationship where there's intimacy rather than these secrets? And by be willing to say this thing, this communication, opens up the door for them to tell you things. And all of a sudden you're authentically relating rather than lying. Mm. And is this something you think you have to, you have to ideally build this foundation early on? I think if you want to have a masterful relationship, yes. If you want to have a mediocre relationship, which most people do, then no, live inside the mediocrity. If mediocrity works for you, go for it, live Mm. it. If you want to live in passionate, optimized, honest, authentic relating, it takes truth after truth after truth. 
When you said that thing to me in front of your work friends, I was so embarrassed. It deeply hurt my feelings. I feel so angry that you said that thing in front of me. The other person was like, oh my God, I had no idea. Like those are the kind of communications if you want to be honest. Otherwise, what people do, especially women in today's society, they push it down and then the withholds create chasms and then you break up in six months anyway. <laughs> right. That, that's often what happens with any kind of withholding. You end up creating the thing you're scared of anyway. Just yes. from a different place. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I think a lot of it is just with any honesty is like you've said before, the is the fear of the outcome. It's creating mm-hmm. the scenario in your mind of, oh, I'm gonna tell her about the lap dance and then that's it. You know, I have to I have to prepare myself mentally that she may leave me after this conversation. True. I'm not ready for her to leave me right now, so I'm not gonna go there. Right. And so that's what most people do. And the reason most people do that is because we're external validation junkies. We are constantly looking externally from ourselves to perceive our value. If we're with that attractive woman, if we have the successful partner, if we have the right car, the right bank account, if it looks right, we have you know all our belief in who we are and how well we're doing in today's society is based on something outside of ourselves because we're junkies. What I train people to do, especially men, is to build their own internal validation motor, their own system to truly fall in love with themselves, to truly believe in themselves. Then everything outside of it is just the gravy. It still feels great when Morgan, my wife, now says, I really appreciate this thing. It feels great when she says I look handsome. You know, all those things feel great, but I already know it. You know, and I already I already know that I'm going to be all right. I mean, the greatest example is I have an agreement with Morgan. If she found someone better to be with, she should go be with that person. If she finds some guy that lights her up more than me, all my blessing, because I love her so much and I have such a strong self-belief validation in myself that I have the space for it. In doing so also encourages me constantly to become a better and better partner to minimize the risk that some other guy is going to take my lady away from me. Mm. But that's still the core foundation. The core agreement I have with her is that, you know, me or someone better, <laughs> really. And then all of a sudden we're not tied out of some weird obligation, but out of choice. Mm. And in that choice is where the optimal relationship exists. And so where does, not obligation, but where does commitment stand in this for you where it's a bigger commitment than just sort of the trivial ins and outs of a relationship where you say, hey, you know, we're in this for, I don't know, good is the right word. We're in this for good, but we're in this for a longer term. Or do you believe just I don't, roll with it in the moment to moment? I think, it's, I think it's a lie. I think it's a lie society has told us. We're together for life and yet, you know, how many relationships break up? Divorce rate hovers around 50%. Mm. We actually have more single people in America now for the first time in history. We have isolation is deeply impacting, especially in people in older age. You know, there's a Boston Globe article that said that men over 50 are more afraid of isolation than cancer. You know, like it's a lie. You know, together for life is a lie. You know, some people will stay together, but be miserable together. I'm committed to being the best person I can be in every single moment of that relationship. And when I mistakes, and I certainly make a lot of mistakes, I'm going to say, whoa, I apologize. 
I understand how that impacted you. Please tell me more. And I'm going to work on that. So I'm committed to every single moment with her rather than some bullshit for life thing that's not true. Mm. Because we go through so many changes. If we're we're growing, if we're committed to a life of growth, we go through so many changes. If you married me at 10 years ago at 25, you'd be married to a completely different human today, like almost not recognizable to that person. Right. And that's where most people feel betrayed. Oh my God, you're not the same person I met 10 years ago. Well, thank God. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, and to me, you know, the me creating a space for Morgan to have as much expansion and growth is, is my desire. It's my honor to create so much space that she might grow out of me. Right. It's hilarious. It's just like, it's ironical. It's like, I want her to have all the opportunities. There's no rules on my side of what she can or cannot do or experience. Like, I want her to be a free woman. In being a free woman or creating that space, my belief system is that's going to make me the most attractive rather than some tamped down prison like structure that most people create in relationships. Mm. So, and I'm so thrilled with her evolution. And in doing so, I make the commitment for myself to totally evolve, which includes changing some of my habits that she didn't like. Because I had the choice of being the single non-monogamous person when we started and, and her not liking it to me being like, huh, I wonder what monogamy would be like. Let me go check that out. And in the evolution of that, which continues to evolve, I've learned so much about myself. Hmm. So it raises the point around compromise. At, at what point do you have to compromise and at what point does it become toleration? I don't believe in the power of compromise. I think it's the detriment of relationship. Hmm. I think compromise equates to acquiescence and we have a lot of acquiescence to keep the relationship going. And I think that's where the truth isn't told. So I hmm. think compromise and acquiescence sucks. I believe in extending the conversation, continuing the conversation till both people feel right about the decision. Maybe not happy, fun, joyous, but feel right. There's a difference. There's a difference in terms of, wow, my choosing monogamy for the last two years has been the right thing, both for myself and learning about myself, but for the relationship. Was I happy about it? No. Am I happy about it now? Eh, not a big deal. So, but the the growth from it has been remarkable. So mm-hmm. continuing to talk about it, to show, to be honest, to reveal, to be authentic, to continue the conversation, that's where the masterful relationships come from. Not one of us quitting until the real truth is told. That's what I recommend. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the growth is kind of a little bit unexpected for you. Oh, for sure. Like, you know, when we got together uh, four and a half years ago, I was like, listen, I am not a monogamous person. I'm never going to be a monogamous person. If you want want monogamy, look elsewhere. I'm not your guy. I'm not your guy. It, it was a little haughty. It was, a, you know, like I like the word haughty. It was a little you know, arrogant. And then, you know, six months later, she's like, well, this monogamy, non-monogamy is not working for me. I'm leaving. And I'm just like, I'll do anything. Okay. You know, like, <laughs> I'll change. Because she was... She's 
she's Morgan. She's, you know, she's the love of my life. And so then she said, okay, let's try. If you want to be with another woman, I'll be, I'll join in. And I was like, yes, that works. I'm a total yes to that. Mm. And so we found the right relationship at that time. Tried that for about two years and it didn't work at all. It, you know, we had some really great experiences, but it really wasn't the right thing. And then uh, it stopped. And then I had this uh, mushroom trip, actually, where I saw the opportunity for me to explore what it's like to be monogamous with her. And I chose it. I didn't compromise. I chose it. And the last two years have been amazing in terms of the growth of our relationship. And, you know, now we're in the conversation again about possibly opening things up. And that feels right, too. So the whole thing has been a journey. I love those moments where you go from, I I just can't imagine being monogamous to having an insight. And it doesn't necessarily have to come through a psychedelic experience, but just having some kind of shift that goes, huh, actually, this does feel like something I'd like to choose now. Right. I love those moments where it's kind yeah. of unexpected. You go, man, what, what changed? Why, you know, what happened? Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's like we're so afraid of losing. Mm. And we're so afraid if I turn monogamous, I'll always be monogamous or whatever that is. Or everything, you know, everything is changing. We're always evolving. But it's the willingness to say, like, these are the things I don't like about monogamy. Blah, 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 the conversations, the depth, her patience was extraordinary. My patience was extraordinary. And we <laughs> found ourselves deeply knowing each other more and more from that experience, which I'm so grateful. I've grown so much as a man just by my willingness to speak the truth, her willingness to hear it, her truth, and my willingness to hear her truth. Mm. That's been the growth as a man. Yeah. Because I know, I know there'll be a ton of guys watching this going, how the fuck do I get my wife to bring somebody else into the relationship? This is impossible. But you're saying it just comes from a lot of honesty and a lot of challenging conversations, I would say. Yeah. Because, you know, most, most guys have that fantasy. They think about it constantly. They're watching porn. You know, they're living outside their relationship. And the wife, you know, it's like either knowing it or not caring. And then the mediocrity hits the relationship, you know. What are you thinking about? The guy's thinking about a porn thing he saw. Oh, I think about the job, you know, like not being honest. Well, you're creating distance. Every time you lie, you create a little distance. Rather than it's like, wow, I watched this great porn thing. And she might say, really? Let me watch. And all of a sudden, you're just like, oh, you don't have to be a a, a chameleon in your own mm-hmm. home. With your, mm-hmm. You can actually be who you are. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm saying quite the opposite. It's like this is a difficult road to walk on, but I can tell you if you're willing to build the practice of it, you'll have the most epic relationships of your life. Yeah, I think it's, uh, can you hear the sirens? It's very, okay. very New Yorker. <laughs> very New Yorker. Yeah. Never stops. Never ever stops. Um, yeah, I think one of the addictions in life that I see is people want to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, that the goal seems to be comfortable and it doesn't matter whether it's a job or a relationship. Uh, comfort seems to be the goal and anything that challenges comfortability of things seems so unacceptable to so many people. They just can't yeah. even bear to face a moment of discomfort in a conversation or a relationship or an exercise or journaling or anything exactly. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, and it's not even, I think, the love of comfortable. I think it's the fear of being uncomfortable. Mm which is a two distinct things. 
we are afraid of what the impact of being uncomfortable is because we're not trained to learn to love the discomfort. We'll do it in some places. Like we'll go pay an hour for a yoga class and get in that downward dog and stay in that position where our shoulders are shaking. We're very uncomfortable. And we'll leave that class. We're like, oh, I'm so amazing. I stayed in that downward dog an extra five seconds. But we won't do it in relationship. That's all the, the exercise is. All exercise is making yourself really uncomfortable for a short period of time. So for the other 23 hours of the day, you can feel a lot better than you would without it. Right. Yeah. I mean, exercise by its very nature is tearing of muscle. You're actually physically tearing the microfilaments of your muscle so they can re- repair and build. But we won't do that in relationship. We won't, you know, we'll walk home and have the same conversation and the same, you know, life every single day rather than just be like, you know, I hear about this ayahuasca stuff. Are you curious about that? Or like, God, I'm working this job and uh, I really want to quit. We won't do that. We won't be honest with each other out of some fear of discomfort. Something. Yeah. yeah. So we've touched on it a little bit, but your book is called Unhidden. Yes. Why hiding? What way is is hiding the, the thing you went after for men? Well, because we're trained to hide. We're trained to live in small little boxes and tell the truth in very specific times. We're, we're trained to only show the right part of ourselves that will avoid discomfort. And when I, when I coach people and I teach people from business CEOs to personal relationships, it's the, the second you, you reveal some part of yourself, also known as vulnerability. Like I'm reading a book um, about conflict and falling, the beauty of conflict, it's called. And it's all about that one moment when the executive says, you know what, guys, I think I've kind of screwed up around this leadership thing. That's where the teams tend to congeal rather than the stoic, everything is fine, everything is fine. Everything is fine because we hide because we are afraid of what the response will be. Mm. And to me, if you want to expand and evolve, you have to be vulnerable and stop hiding. That's the whole thesis of the book. Yeah. Why do you think, you know, in my experience, and I think other people's experience, men just seem to be a little bit slower to come into this work. Yes. At the moment. So, you know, it's personal development. If you look around, it's sort of 75, 80% women. If you look at this podcast and all the people that watch it, like it, comment on it, is ninety percent women. Yep. Why is that? Like, what, what, what is having men not come into this work or not want to look at this stuff? You know, I didn't plan to write a men's book. It was actually a recommendation by my book coach, a uh, woman mm. named Kelly Notaris of KN Literary Arts, who I highly recommend. Uh, she's the one who said, "Hey, you should write a book for men." And I was like, "Huh." What What I'm seeing happening, and statistics really prove this, is that. You know, the patriarchy has been around for 6,000 years, depending on which historian you like to listen to. Right. And what we've seen in the last 170, you know, women's suffrage movement, 1848 to the, you know, the, the, uh, the 19th Amendment, uh, women's right to vote uh, in America in 1920, to the schooling systems shifting in the 1960s, the last 50 years has been this evolutionary exponential change in terms of women's power in society. I'm not saying they're equal in any shape or form. I'm just saying the change in the last 50 years from schooling 
to women in the boardroom, to women entering the workforce, to the loss of jobs that were predominantly run by men. Uh, there's really been incredible epic changes in the last 50 years. So men had 6,000 years of being in the power position, and all of a sudden, the last 50, things are shifting. And they have what uh, author Michael Kimmel likes to call aggrieved entitlement, the belief that they deserve X, Y, and Z, the job, the power position, and it's changing quickly. And instead of men saying, oh, shit, I've got to learn some new skills, men are digging in to this aggrieved entitlement and using force rather than power to maintain this position and in doing so, actually getting run over by the rise of women in today's society. Mm, Kind of left behind in a way. Yeah. You know, I wrote an article, men are heading in the wrong direction. And my mission is to say, hey, guys, like this could be the best time in, in our entire history to be a man. We have women's empowerment. We have women earning their own money. We have women opening up their sexuality. Like this could be the best party ever. And instead, we're sitting with our hands crossed watching video games and, you know, masturbating to porn. You know, like it's, it breaks my heart to see the potential for the mm. best time for the genders and all sexual orientations to, to come together to have the best party, but instead we're actually avoiding and non-confronting. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of upsetting in a way. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of disappointed women. Many, many, many like, hey, where are all the men to keep up with me? Oh, yeah. they're watching video games. Oh, you know, it's, the word, you know, Michael Kimmel, he's a uh, really great author, especially around men's work. And uh, he wrote a, several, I think about a dozen books at this point. He wrote a book called Angry White Men, which is really interesting. He also mm-hmm. wrote a book called Guyland, which talked about the concept of adolescence. Adolescence is a relatively new term, less than 100 years old. Back in the early part of the 20th century, you know, you became a man when you got a job or married at 15 or 16 years old. Now they're having what's called extended adolescence, where young men are saying, I'm going to live to 90, I might as well be a boy until 30. And women are in their 20s chugging along, looking for men, and all they're seeing in the field is a lot of boys. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure your audience are actually men doing the work, so I'm actually not talking to you at all. Like I know there's so many great men John Wyland is a good friend of mine and someone I deeply respect. I mean, there's a lot of great guys out there doing great work and a lot of great students. But if you look at the bell curve, there's still this huge portion of men who are not stepping up to the possibility of this dynamic 21st century. Yeah, it is a real digging in, a real resistance. And I love what you said. The opportunity is uh, this unexpected growth, this incredible growth, This, if you lean into it, embrace it. And I guess it's... Uh, you know, I was just talking to a woman today that her partner is not really keeping up with her evolution mm-hmm. and her growth. And that causes sort of some insecurity in him that has him dig in even more, right? Oh, yeah. Which can be the challenge. And, but if you can go through that insecurity, or if you can, so much of any of this kind of growth is learning to be a beginner again, learning to fumble and, and make mistakes again. Because there is a tremendous amount of growth on the other side of it and possibility Indeed. available. So much possibility. And I mean, for for guys who are happy with their life or happy with their relationships, happy with their status quo, this isn't going to apply. Like, Mm. really, like 
you know, we're changed by inspiration or desperation. Most of us are changed by desperate times where things get really bad. You know, that that seventh relationship ends after mm. two months. The woman leaves. You know, we get to the point where we're like, huh, maybe something's amiss with me. Um, but if you're happy with your status quo, then don't listen to a word I'm saying. But if you are unhappy, some degree of your life, your family life, your relationship, your health, your intimacy, your sex life, there's something amiss. My recommendation is just to turn and face it and confront it. Listen to that voice that's saying this could be a little bit better from this place. Your whole life only get better when you put your attention on it. When mm. you turn your attention on something, it grows. I'm not saying you'll stay in the same relationship, but you'll be more you in whatever relationships you are in. This applies for me like directly. I notice in my dating and my relationships, like I'm quite an intellectual person. I'm in the personal development world, so I can talk about a lot of concepts. And sexually, I was very active, um, and very comfortable in that regard. But everything between the head yeah. <laughs> and genitals was missing, right? Like any feeling in here or any emotion or any expression was really stunted. Mm-hmm. And so I had a bunch of guys that I was dating that said, hey, uh, I'm just not feeling it. Or, mm-hmm. hey, the, the, the spark isn't there for me. It happened like a couple of times in a row. And mm-hmm. I was like, fuck, like, what's happening? What am I doing? Yeah. And I realized yeah. it's because literally they're not feeling me. Mm-hmm. They're not feeling anything. We can have a good conversation. They find me interesting. Sexually is fine. But there's, there's something emotional missing. There's something missing. So that's how I had to confront it. This is like within the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, this, man, there's this, this, some work available for me in that emotional stuff. Right. And what a gift those guys gave to you. No, to, fuck them. What are you talking about? Well, horribly sorry, bad boys, bad, bad, bad. Exactly. Boys. Yeah. But what a gift they gave you, from my perspective, For what sure. a gift they gave you in that feedback to just say, you're a great guy, you're a great talker, you're a great makeout, but I can't feel your heart. And I want more. Mm. Like, that's what people, I think, need to do rather than sitting in the, you know, the half-truths we like to feel comfortable in. And it doesn't have to mean you're splitting. It just means like, hey, I, I have this new bottom line of I need to be able to feel you. I need to be able to you to tell me the truth. I don't want to be blocked out. I want to feel more important than the television. I you know, I don't want your phone in the bedroom. I want you in the bedroom with me without any clothes on, without any distractions. Like these are the kind of things that we need to tell each other. Not from a you know, we often tell it from a place of uh, bitchy or nagging. Tell it from the soft, vulnerable place of just like, this isn't enough. I want to be with you, but we got to work on this. And if you, if you don't say that and they don't change, well, guess what? They don't. Even, they might not even know. Like I didn't even know the depth of how chauvinistic and misogynistic I was when I started this work. I didn't know. I would, thought I was just this nice guy, mm. and you know the feedback I got from women and from great teachers changed me into the man I am today. I'm so grateful. Yeah. yeah I'm grateful for it, for it as well. I think mm-hmm. it's, 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 I have a, a ongoing story, you know, from childhood that I'm not good enough and I'm mm-hmm. always looking for evidence for that. Mm-hmm. So I find when I get this kind of feedback, a lot of the time it'll trigger me not being good enough mm-hmm. and then I'll just shut down or wallow, mm-hmm. you know? And so what I'm learning now is kind of going, okay, well, yeah, that n- not good enough feeling comes up, but that's mm-hmm. not who you are. That's just a feeling. And, you know, you can actually choose to take the feedback and be proactive mm-hmm. rather than just packing up your toys and running away. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, my my life, you know, you asked like moments in life, like there was Burning Man. And then six months later, I was at my first workshop on sexuality. And I was with my first wife, Carol, and about 18 people who are much more experienced. This is my first time in anything like this. And I do the introduction to who I am. And I thought I was clever and smart. I thought the teacher was going to invite me to come teach with him. The people would clap. And instead, he said, hey, do you know your wife's crying? And she was sitting right next to me. And I had no idea of how chauvinistic I was and how I impacted her. I had no idea, no clue. And I saw the, the, the radar, the Terminator view screen came up that said, you know, leave, kill everyone, you know, fight back. Or D was to say and sit in the burn to figure out what part of me was running the show. And I stayed. And my whole life was from that one moment of staying in the fire of, of the total embarrassment of being told my wife's crying and not even knowing it. Mm. Yeah, that's that's the choice is stay. Stay and feel it. Stay and feel it. Yeah. Robert, this has been a beautiful conversation. Thank you. Thank you, brother. My yeah, pleasure. If people want to explore more about you or find the book or explore your podcast, what's the best way to do that? Everything can be found at my website, Robert Candell. Dot com K-A-N-D-E-L-L.com. Uh, the book's on Amazon. There's an audio version I had fun doing. Uh, I have my podcast, Tough Love. You can link or find it on iTunes, Stitcher. And um, I do writing quite a bit. And yeah, everything can be found at robertcandell.com. Awesome. What, what The Tough Love podcast, what's that about? What, what can people expect when they listen to that? It's, it's evolved. It's been doing it for almost uh, four years now. I think I'm in show 220 or something like that awesome. at the moment. Uh, it started off as a group coaching call. So I would actually coach someone live, but I ran out of people to coach. So now it's uh, pragmatic ideas and concepts to evolve. So I have people on the show who have interesting ideas. Uh, I, it's a really wide spectrum from business to personal to sexuality. And I do rants where I talk about a topic. So it really is a mixed bag of ideas and concepts to help you in this crazy chaotic chaotic world very cool great robert hey thank you so much for coming here i appreciate you giving us your time my pleasure and thank you guys uh as always for tuning in uh if you think somebody would love to hear this conversation if there's a man in your life that you think would benefit from this looking to get into this kind of work please share it around send it to them uh or just give us a like leave a comment uh let us know what your favorite part of the show was uh check out robert robertcandell.com and i'll be back uh next week with episode number 96 of the nathan seward show That was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.